Hi, my name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. And this is Exploration Radio. On this week's episode, Holly, welcome to Exploration Radio. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I guess the, the idea behind the discussion we wanted to have with you today is around this concept of uh, mining 4.0 or the digitalization of mining. They're very motherhood statements and there is not a lot of nuance in what they actually mean. Mm -hmm. So what we really wanted to have this conversation is in different contexts, what do those things mean? And with your role in Unearth, you kind of sit in a very interesting space where you know, you're not industry, but you're not purely a service provider that's selling technology to the industry. You're kind of the facilitator in the middle. Um, so that's what we really wanted to have a chat about. Great. So let's start off with how did Unearth come about? So Unearth started back in around uh, 2014 uh, with our two founders, Justin and Zane. Uh, both had their own startups in oil and gas in this case. And they had been given great feedback that they had great products, they were moving in the right direction, they had something that was really important to industry, yet when it came to engaging with people they were selling their products to, i.e. the oil and gas companies, uh, they came across, uh, as you'd expect, the common blockers that startups do um, in terms of how they could actually engage with those companies. And they found that basically it was impossible to do business. So they realized this is a fundamental problem. You had you had startups out there creating amazing technologies. Um, they're incredibly agile. They're able to test a lot of things in the marketplace. But they couldn't engage with the people that often really needed those products. So Unearth was started to really bridge that gap between the startup sector and large industry, and particularly in the resources sector, so mining, oil and gas. Mm -hmm. And while Unearth is really known for, originally for the, the hackathons and those kind of in-person events that we, we started doing, um, that was really because we saw the way to get industry engaged is to get them out of the building and actually doing something and engaging with people outside of their, their current sphere and seeing the value and feeling that value that they could get from that. Not being so siloed as these companies often tend to be. Yes, and realizing, you know, people... Um, with different skill sets to what you're used to can provide incredible value back to you by looking at your problems in a totally different way. Um, so that was really how, how on earth came about. And it's grown from that now into broader crowdsourcing, but still supporting and helping startups grow and, and, and provide them with access to market and access to customers. And really, we're trying to grow the overall pool of startups in, in the resources sector, encourage more people to start businesses in the sector as well. So how did you get involved in Unearth? Um, so, I, so I'm a geologist, exploration geologist by, by background. So We won't hold that against <laughs> you. That's fine. No, so I, I still call myself a geologist, although you know, so many people start off their conversations with, well, I used to be a geologist or <laughs> by trade I'm a geologist. Um, but I was an incredibly passionate exploration geologist, absolutely loved it. I love field work. Um, that was really my background, studied geology at uni in the UK and came out to Australia Another poem in <laughs> Yeah, you can't get rid of us. Um, but yeah, originally I, I came out just to um, to fund my uh, backpacking trip to South America. But um, I just absolutely loved it. It blew me away that someone would actually pay you to go and run around in the outback. And I just thought it was phenomenal. I think geology as a career provides you as amazing opportunities to travel and see parts of the world that you would never see otherwise. And um, top that off with the kind of the thrill that you get through exploring and looking for something that no one's found before. Yep. Um, it's it's an incredible career. So I, I really I really enjoyed that. But when I came to Unearth, I'd kind of been doing exploration geology for around ten years. And um, whilst I loved that field as aspect, I was getting a, a little bit jaded by some of the other aspects of the of the industry. And I was really looking for a role where I could make a difference in a broader sense. So. Like impact the industry in yeah. the way that's kept. Yeah, exactly. So when I came across Unearth, I saw what they were doing and I thought it was so important. And I, even at an early stage, they're having such an impact on, on individuals and the industry generally. And I just thought it was something that for me, I'd love to be a part of. So you uh, just briefly mentioned that you were somewhat jaded working in the, as an exploration geologist, largely in the junior kind of market. Yeah. Do you care to comment? What were some of the things that led you to be somewhat jaded? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, over over time, you start to see different different aspects of that industry. And the junior sector is really interesting. It's There's a lot of people working working in that space. Um, and, and for me, it was really, you know, a couple of things I found 
for publicly listed companies, it's it's hard, right? You know, you're constantly having to go back to the market to raise money. There's lots of up and downs, and we know that the that the um, industry is secular and there are ups and downs. But even aside from that, there's a constant having to go back to to shareholders and to market for cash, top up cash, and what that means often is that. There's limited expenditure actually for expiration activities in the junior sector. So, you know, often um, you find yourself without much of a budget to do much work. And because there's generally high corporate overheads across the board and there's many, many companies, mm-hmm. if you look at that, if you look at the landscape overall, you know, there's lots of companies with a couple of tenements. All of them have high corporate overheads. So that a lot of that overall expenditure and investment that goes into expiration is spent in the corporate side and listing requirements and yeah, there's a lot of inefficiency in that in that whole setup. Mm. I mean, I mean, for me, the companies that I worked in the actual geological work was great, and I think what drew me to the junior sector in the first place was just that being able to really run projects have a lot more impact as an individual mm-hmm. decision making rights responsibility that kind of thing and and really in the junior sector while you don't have as much money you are able to be innovative in the way that you think and the way that you do things and you're not constrained to particular processes per se so that side of it for me I really enjoyed and certainly you know working on on fairly unique deposits we were able to do things in a different way which you probably wouldn't have done in a, in a larger companies there were certainly the positives as well it's a very good point that you are the architect of your own success and demise in a lot of ways i also got to say that you worked in a junior company doing uranium yeah was that prior or post the uranium market completely falling apart uh it was kind of during so perfect yeah, I've had an interesting career. I've worked in mostly in uranium and rare earths, so non-traditional. I've had a very short period in gold, but definitely not your classic Western Australian geologist by any means. So is there a part of your career in the in the junior space that got you more interested in open innovation uh, side of things? Is there a reason? Do you see there a need in how junior companies work where they could leverage uh, the expertise of the crowd or... Yeah, definitely. I suppose to answer the first part of the question, I certainly wasn't thinking about the crowd when I was working in the junior explorers. I was thinking more about technology. You know, I think when everyone starts out thinking about innovation, they're thinking about tech. They're thinking about what tech can I bring in and what's the next best thing I can use. And particularly in exploration, we're always trying to find something new that can give us a new type of data to better define or better indicate where our ore body is. So um one thing for me that, I, that that we worked on which was you know not cutting edge really per se now but we did a lot of work with portable xrf in real time data mm-hmm. so we were one of the first companies to release a joke compliant resource with portable xrf data in that in that resource so it might not sound that groundbreaking but at the time it was something that no one was doing and everyone was very critical of anybody that was trying to do it because yeah. they often didn't back it up with the test work which is which we did so that was pretty interesting, but I think my, I suppose my ideas and perception of innovation since I've worked at Unearthed has probably shifted and I'm not necessarily just looking now at what technologies go, that can change exploration, but how we can do things differently, how we can work differently, how we can use, specifically use data differently, which I think is from a crowd perspective, um, an interesting approach. So do you think we have an over-reliance on technology at times? I think we just have a perception that innovation equals technology and that's just not the only avenue for change. So for me, the the two big changes in exploration that I think we'll see coming, there will be technological advances which help us better define and, and identify yeah, all bodies. Yeah, which are inevitable. Yeah, but we will also see a change of how we use data better, mm-hmm. which I think will really change our discovery rate. And that might not be what people will classically you know, define as innovation. And I think it's probably one of the most uh, underutilized resources that we have is the data that we actually collect. Yeah. You know, not just, say, within one company, but if you look at a project that changes multiple hands and companies collect roughly the same data in different ways to those generations, and if we were better at handling our data, it, it would actually be used a lot more down the line as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've done the classic work that every exploration geologist has done of searching through historical reports and compiling old uh, data from the government uh, online services and things like that. And it always occurred to me every time I was doing that, 
um, that probably five people had done the exact same work before me. And this really doesn't seem to be an efficient process. Um, so I think there's definitely something in how the data is stored and how it partly how it's recorded, but more how it's stored. And I think if you look at the majority of the systems that the governments have developed to allow people to view and access that data, they've been developed from the point of view of how you might traditionally interrogate data, how you want mm-hmm. to go and look at a tenement and see what previous results may be in that tenement and you download them as individual files for individual reports of work that was done. There hasn't been much thought around how you might use that in a broader sense for analytics Mm -hmm. or other more modern approaches that people are trying to do now. So it's still fairly difficult to use those open data sources in a meaningful way on Mm -hmm. a large scale. We're certainly seeing change, and I think the Queensland government later this year will be releasing and opening up their data lake with Mm -hmm. data APIs. So that's the first time that we'll see something a bit different in Australia and Australia is certainly leading the way so even though I'm being slightly critical we're, we're better than everybody else by quite a long way yeah yeah that's right I think Australia the the environment and how geological surveys work here with data the amount they collect and how much they make readily available I think is definitely very unique completely and that's from a from the aspect of you know look at particularly at South Australia the amount of um data they collect themselves in terms of the surveys that they do that's pretty incredible but also the legislation that they have in place to ensure that privately acquired data becomes public in a certain time frame as well so i think there's there's both lessons to be learned there in other countries that having the right legislation to ensure that private data does become useful over time but also investing in the right data collection uh, sources yourself. I mean, I've been watching, you know, some of the stuff coming out of the US about how they really want to source a lot of their critical metals um, from internal deposits. It's so difficult to do any exploration work in, in the US. So it's, I find that interesting that they're pushing to do that, but yet there's no policy or data availability yeah, to, that's right. you know, incentivize explorers. And it'll be interesting to see how that thread plays out. Do you need the policy first to push people to behave a certain way or who comes together to start putting the data sets together or starts putting the the work together to allow people to go find these things? What's the catalyst for it? Is it policy? And if that's the case, then I think that's one view that they're going to try is they're going to change the policy and that's how they incentivize people. I think in Australia, it's the opposite approach that we invest in the money and give the data away. And if that encourages people to look in Australia, then that's better than them looking elsewhere. So I yeah. think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, I think we have a very healthy perception of of how we generate uh, economic opportunities in our in our states and from a geological point of view. Like the surveys understand that if they spend money collecting this data, it will bring money back to them in terms that's of right. the money that's spent. So that sounds very logical. I quite like the point you made there as well, is that there is a... Uh, a double reason why exploration companies or as an industry we struggle that one is the fact that the way we handle the data the way we store it the way we distribute it the way we present it for people to use is built in a very narrow way so there's obviously that side which is that the data isn't in the best way for us to utilize but then the other side of it is that i and I think this is the point I want to get into is that I think there's a skills problem on the other side as well, that as geologists, we don't necessarily have the skills to handle the data in in a large manner or in a very global manner. Yeah, I think that would be fair. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of people now looking to the likes of machine learning and more advanced analytics or, or really any statistical techniques which allow you to deal with multiple layers of data mm-hmm. you know geologists are, are scientists and and usually have a decent level of of mathematical skills N- not everyone but as a general rule i think most geologists have a, have enough scientific background to deal with numbers fairly well but when it comes to looking at hundreds to thousands of layers of data that that needs to have a, a more advanced approach yeah that's so right. i think people are moving towards that avenue of machine learning and are certainly looking for people with those skill sets to either bring into their company or you know tap into through the crowd yeah i guess that was going to be my question is that is that the role that crowdsourcing really plays in this space is that as companies or organizations you don't have that skill set in-house and you can't really wait for the next uh, batch of graduates to come out with data analytics skills 
So is that the reason why you think crowd is the way to go get around that? I think that's one of the reasons I think particularly with with data science and machine learning what's interesting is that the majority of people don't learn these skills in school they're often self-taught we're not seeing um everyone coming out with a computer science degree um that then goes in you know becomes a data scientist a lot of people have backgrounds in different disciplines and that's because they can learn these skills online from anywhere around the world uh, and that's why we're seeing such, such a distributed workforce mm-hmm. um you can't go somewhere necessarily per se perhaps maybe stanford or mit and find you know the best data scientists um so our traditional ways of hiring people out of university or in our local area may mean that we can't actually tap into the skills that we want and that we need they're not always going to be in your local area so the crowd offers you the opportunity to tap into a global network yep. and people can work where they want to or from wherever they want to and for whatever kind of hours they want to so it's a different way of working the explorer challenge though i think what's really interesting is and this is probably a, a first for on earth when i think about it is we're really trying to use that concept of the wisdom of the crowd and what i mean by that is that we're saying the average is better than an individual yeah the consensus view should be better than an individual's view yeah exactly so i think that's a concept that probably many people aren't necessarily familiar with and to think about in line with exploration the book the wisdom of the crowd i think came out in early 2000s and really that was kind of kind of popularizing that concept that yeah the average of many people um you know is better than an, any individual result and i think they kind of some of the opening of that book was around you know those kind of ideas of guessing how many pennies there are in a jar that's right those kind of things like the average is always going to be be closer than any individual and what i find interesting about that is if you look now there's actually quite a lot of companies um on the market which use these kind of um i don't think they necessarily use the word crowd but um distributed um collection of predictions and mm-hmm. averages of predictions like in sports betting and predicting news events uh, predicting markets uh, and these are you know billion dollar companies so there's a there's a genuine move and understanding that the consensus model is often uh, more preferable to to any individual yep. for me where i find this really interesting in exploration is because when we actually look to how we traditionally do exploration we're incredibly biased and we're intentionally very very biased so and what i mean by that if you think about you know say you have an example exploration company looking for archean orogenic gold mm-hmm. you only want to employ geologists that have experience in archean gold yeah which is a fundamental flaw in the whole setup but that's what we think is our advantage right yep. so we feel that we have an advantage because we're employing these experts that know about these type of deposits so we're much more likely to be able to find deposits and get more value out of them and we do the same when it comes to consultants we have an idea we want to look for structurally hosted deposits so we employ a a structural expert to help us look for those so we're adding on constant layers of expertise which is also bias. Mm-hmm. And we have a very strong tie and exploration to expertise. As a young geologist myself, there was no way I was getting a job in gold if I'd never worked in gold. Like it's not going to happen. And I think that's a fair point that you know we we are in exploration. I think as an industry as well, we are very driven by the view that uh, experts will provide us the best outcome. So I think what we'll see through the work we're doing with Oz Minerals on this explorer challenge we're definitely promoting the idea and this concept of consensus may be better than the individual expert so what we're going to be able to do through this competition is combine hundreds of 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 models and and targets into a, a one consensus model mm-hmm. and i think it's going to be really interesting to see how successful um that can be in identifying those those top targets yeah, and i'm hoping that we'll have the opportunity to do that a number more times and, and then showcase how that may work and validate that i'm comfortable that our scientific knowledge is is good enough um for us to regularly define you know broad areas of prospectivity mm-hmm. um we are pretty good at being able to identify regions that are prospective for certain mineralization types so mm-hmm. our, our knowledge about mineralization and or, or deposit formation is is good enough but where we haven't cracked it is that point location deposit scale ability 
to yeah. predict where deposits are. That's why we have an understanding that our success rate is very low. We use a lot of different data to help us. But at the end of the day, there's no people out there that are really good at finding uh, deposits at that real real local scale. So there's a genuine opportunity that that consensus approach of having lots of different opinions and lots of different models could be a really genuine opportunity to do something a bit different to increase that discovery rate. On that kind of same line of thought, if we go back to the machine learning mm-hmm. um, example, we're seeing a lot of people use use more machine learning techniques. But when we think about how people are using that, when, when we use machine learning, we're predicting, we're trying to predict something often. You know, mm-hmm. We're using a, you know, neural net, deep learning, whatever, to make a prediction. So we have to ask a specific question. The companies that are coming out in the market are producing models which are good at predicting specific types of mineralization, so perhaps mm-hmm. like porphyry copper or something yep. like that. And you see that across the board with any use of machine learning in um, any industry, right? We, we don't have general AI. We use specific machine learning algorithms to, That's right. to yeah. predict things. And so in the case of targeting, you're always going to have more benefit from comparing multiple models than ever just using one model. An example that's slightly off topic, but if you look at what people are doing with computer vision in core photography, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you have one algorithm to identify your structures, you have one algorithm to tell you your lithology, you have one ag- algorithm to identify your fracture frequency, one algorithm to do- recognize your text written in your core. So you've got all these different algorithms that come together. And it's a stacked approach that, you know, by mm. stacking them on top of each other, you get the, the best product at the end. Your, your point is a very valid one in that exploration right now for a number of reasons, I don't think we have the ability to test multiple models very quickly. You know, from a generative point of view, usually there's a little bit of thinking that goes in. Uh, maybe the thinking part tests the different models. Empirically, we don't really have the ability to test the, test those models. No, and I think the way we think about testing multiple models is still in a very linear way. We have a model and we go and test it and then in a particular way and then we if it doesn't work, then we may have maybe look at a different model and then go and test that. And what I like about the the consensus approach, particularly the way we're doing it with, with Oz, is that it allows you to actually quantitatively bring together all the different models and their outputs into one. So you're automatically then having that combined one consensus model, which you can then go and test. You know the 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 highest frequency target that was mm-hmm. generated, for example. Um, so I think it's it's an it's a, an opportunity to do that in a quantitative way, which we often don't see. I mean, I agree. The thing that I like about the Explorer Challenge is the fact that it's it's an experiment to run to see how well does that work on a large scale. You know, often in companies, I think in big companies where you have a big group, you probably do that where you take a consensus view by passing the project through the geophysicist and the geologist, someone else, all, all the way through. So you do kind of do the the consensus view obviously you're limited by the the resources that are available to you at that point but it'll be interesting to see what happens if you throw that net as wide as possible and see what type of models do you come in i mean intuitively i think you'll introduce a lot more noise in the system but surely your signal should get better then as well yeah totally i mean it definitely um there will be a lot of uh, a lot of noise if we're getting pulling together probably you know in the range of thousand different targets or more but the group should mature through that process yeah. as well, right? So it's not that, I mean, I guess what, you know, I, I think in, instinctively the answer will be that if the first ones fail, people go, oh, it didn't work. It's like, well, there is a learning curve in that. If you do it a number of times, then the, the crowd gets better. Everyone gets better through feedback. So, and then I think that's also an important part in the whole process as well. Yeah, I find the, the, the Osmonds aren't the first people to do this, this type not of challenge. And uh, although we're trying to, t- take it in a different approach and encourage more of a data science approach than, mm-hmm. than what's been done previously. But I was always fascinated by the original Gold Corp challenge, being that was back in the year 2000, so almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And then, you know, Gold Corp did a similar thing uh, where they put out uh, a lot of their exploration data. I can't remember the name of the deposit, Red Lake or something. Was that the Integra? Challenge? No, so the Integra was after that. Um, that was in 2015, but the Gold, mm-hmm. the original Gold Corp challenge was yeah, back in 2000. Oh, okay. And they, I think, you know, total data was something like 200 megabytes or something back yeah, then. But um, the fascinating thing about that was that they were very clear about the outcome and that they kind of turned them from a struggling small miner into finding $6 billion worth of gold through the competition. So what always interests me was having an incredible success story like that 
which was fairly well broadcast, why is it that no one else followed that? Why did no one else realize this, the, the huge value of, of, of the wisdom of the crowd in that sense? So you, I mean, you sit in Unearth where you go and pitch this to companies. What are some other reasons you hear for people not going down this path? Well, so there's reasons you hear and then there's, there's other, you know, reasons that you infer. I think, you know, for me, there's a couple of things. There's generally, there, there is obviously the clear perception of um, the risk of putting your data into the public domain. I think that's probably one of the major things that, that holds people back. Um, that, and the risk for, is what? That other people will do something with the with the data that you haven't been able to do? Is yeah, that... so I think th- there's usually two kind of concerns. And, and one of them in particular, I think, is, is fairly genuine. So if you're in an early stage exploration, and we've seen this recently with Rio, as soon as there was a sniff of Rio doing something up uh, in the Pilbara, yeah, like all the tenements were snapped up everywhere. So yeah. I think if you're doing something early stage um, and you're... And starting to understand the mineral field, you don't necessarily want to talk publicly about that because you want to have the first rights on picking up ground. Yeah, that's your or, competitive advantage. Yeah, that's right. So I think that's fair. So there's a genuine risk around releasing data at that stage. But we don't seem to really see a change in that perception of risk, even in later stages in projects with most people. Mm-hmm. And when you look to the situation that Oz Minerals are in, they've held that ground for a long time. And they've been working on it also for a long time. So they've got 10 years worth of exploration data that they've collected and they haven't, within their internal teams, been able to find additional economic mineralization outside of Prominent Hill and the underground extension. Mm-hmm. So for them, they don't see any risk, really, in putting that data out in the public. You know, you could argue that someone could find something, wait for them to drop the ground and go and pick it up, but I just don't really see that as really that feasible. Um, the other thing that people obviously worry about is uh, that their data holds the, kind of the key to that expiration model for that specific deposit type. Yep. So if you have the idea that you have the best uh, expiration model for porphyry copper deposits and you don't want to share that with anyone, you may see that that's a risk by putting your data out there. That's something I don't buy, to be honest. I think that you know most geological models at that kind of scale are fairly public. We all kind of share that knowledge. I, I, don't think it's very common to have you know one company that has this uh, high level of ip around a particular deposit type that they know much better than everybody else so but it's also confusing the concept of data versus knowledge yes the data doesn't hold intrinsic knowledge you can actually build that knowledge up over time so by giving the data away you don't necessarily give all your knowledge away either yeah so i, I think there's a, definitely a reason around around the data security risk side and the other one i think is just a fundamental um you know human nature objection to to change you know um it's it's really a a different way of working and which is um, probably the main reason why a lot of these things fall over i would yeah i mean and you've seen yourself i think um what i see a lot in exploration is that there's a lot of really great startups in the exploration space and and they can clearly have a clear value proposition that they can save you a lot of money and a lot of time but still it's not how i work yeah it's not how i work it's okay i'm all good as i am there's not much incentive to do anything in a different way so let's go back to the uh challenge that you're running right now uh who approached who did did oz come to you guys can you talk about how that came about yeah well i think so 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 they did approach us so uh richard holmes who's the exploration manager at, at oz so we mentioned before, you know, kind of Gold Corp and the Integra Challenge. The Integra Challenge happened in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Richard had, had seen that and, and thought, what a fantastic idea and had actually been kind of lobbying internally uh, with Oz and, and the board there to do something like that for a couple of years. And I think it was natural for them to come to Unearth just being, you know, an Australian company. They knew of us that so we were doing crowdsourcing in resources. So it was kind of a natural match. And I also happened to uh, know one of the geos there from my previous life as a geo so Mm -hmm. they kind of reached out to me for us you know it wasn't a we didn't go and do a sales pitch or something like that um obviously we we definitely said yes we can definitely definitely do this i think it suited our community and it said suited what we're trying to do as well it was it's a really great way to be able to showcase what data science can do um and it's a really great way to bring more people into into mining as well and show the opportunity there you know, we're trying to get Richard on this podcast, but I, my assumption would be it would be a great 
way for them to experiment to see what data science could actually do. And then they, as a group, as an exploration group, can then decide which parts they put into their workflow, what they do with it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, I, so I see the benefit for them, aside from the fact that they might find a deposit, which would be great as well. But I think there's a, a genuine kind of corporate learning aspect that I think is something that other companies should think about as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're not they're not doing this as a as a kind of one-off like we're just doing this exciting one-off yeah we thing. had a million dollars to waste so let's yeah, put it in this it, thing it's really strategic and that we they believe that working differently will provide success to them and they are very interested in, in the data science side they're also doing a lot internally already they work with a number of different um, analytics companies mm-hmm. they do, do a lot of different um tests like around machine learning applications and things like that so this is really complementary they also have a data scientist on staff with yeah, in exploration yeah. Richard, who's going to be on the show as well, another Richard. Yeah, and he's fascinating. I'm sure you talked a little bit about his background as well. Yeah, that's that. right. So, <laughs> so I see them actually giving this uh, a fair shake to try to see what they can get out of it as well. Whereas you're right in the sense that I think the previous two by the Canadian companies, I don't think they went down this path. It was more of a short term, you know, can we get something that we can utilize and then kind of move on? Uh, whereas Oz... To me, anyways, as an outsider, it seems like that they are trying to do something a little bit more longer term. Mm. And, and I think that that's, I, mean, I don't, don't know um, really with, with Gold Corp what the progression was there. I think with Integra, so Steve de Jong, who was the CEO at the time, Integra actually got bought out, I think, around 18 months after the competition uh, finished. Yeah, it was massively successful. They yeah. got bought out. So I think then, you know, he obviously went into a different, different company, different role, but I think he has you know, that intention to always do things in a little bit of a, of a different way. And so I think if the company still remained uh, as it was, uh, you probably would have seen something yep. extended there. But yeah, certainly, uh, I totally agree. I think the the team at Oz, um, they're really trying to uh, test things and do things differently and see what, see what works. And um, they've got the full support of the company to do that, which is great. So it's been a huge pleasure to, to work with them throughout that process. And uh, I just really like as well how how open they are about their opinions of like yes this is what we think you know there's a lot of people obviously when you do something different that come out and say you obviously don't trust your geologists so you know all these criticisms and um, so it's great to see that they're kind of yeah standing their ground. I think that view came out really clearly in the discussion with Richard is that he is not an outsider where the group thinks he has no value and they're just waiting out this experiment of hiring this data scientist. You know, he is an integral part of the, the group and the geologists are trying to figure out how they can best utilize Richard's skill set. And Richard's trying to figure out how best he can get the domain expertise from the geologist to run the stuff that he needs to do. So it does seem like they have quite a, a very open way of establishing that this is how we might have to work. Mm, and I, I think the way their exploration team is structured as well, I wouldn't say dictates that, but encourages it because they have such a lean team. I mean, I think they have around five exploration geologists, which is really small considering the size of the company. Yep. So they And they have global exploration. The benefit that they get from analytics and being able to assess early stage projects around the world and, and their own projects that they have is is huge. And I think that, like you say, matching that domain expertise with the analytics is a big challenge for anyone. Um, so the process that they're going through to do that, I think, is adding a lot of value. And I want to go back to a point you just made, which is, I think, quite important, is exploration at, at its fundamental sense is a lot about generating ideas. So when you are a small team, you are somewhat limited by the ideas you can generate by the people that are sitting around the table. So if you are an exploration group and you want to expand the ideas that you have, then I think crowdsourcing is a way that you should go because how else are you going to allow new ideas to come into your company if you're only limited to the five people you can talk to? Yeah, and, and that was really a lot of their, their motivation to, to do this as well. I think specifically around on the project that they put forward, which is around Prominent Hill, you know, they have some of the world's best IOCG geologists in their, in their team and they, you know, applied extensive uh, modeling experience around that type of deposit to the tenement package that they had uh, to look for, you know, that kind of mineralization and, and similar to Prominent Hill. But they also at the same time identified that because they were so focused on that one specific style, uh, they could have easily missed something else or a different deposit type. And yep. so they're quite convinced that there's something else of interest out there that they're expertise doesn't necessarily lend itself to identifying because mm-hmm. they work in a certain way so they're very open in that um and 
you know, explaining what they'd done, explaining the process that they'd taken in the exploration projects that they'd done over the area. And yeah, kind of identifying those potential weaknesses, which is really refreshing because you often don't hear that, you know, going back to the discussion I was saying before, you know, you, you only want to hire certain geologists with certain experience. They're kind of definitely understanding the value of uh, differences of opinion and really looking for that. I think for them, that's what they see they'll really get out of this competition. That's a very good point that you have to be aware of what limitations you have as a group as well. And I don't think that level of honesty has been very prevalent in the exploration industry previously. No, and you, and you can kind of understand that in a way like everyone's trying to protect their, their bit of turf. Everyone wants to be thought of yeah. as, as the expert and the one that's delivering value. So um, it's fine. not an easy thing. You know, it's, it's the people that are able to think at the level of how does the business succeed rather than how do I succeed as an individual are really the ones that are able to to think about how getting different expertise can be really valuable. So let's uh, fast forward. Yeah, Explorer Challenge finishes. It works out. It works for us. What are you hoping to get out of it? Yeah, I think definitely we'd like to see the market, you know, follow in the footsteps of Oz. You know, as Unearthed and what we do, you, you'll see we change a lot. So from everything that we do, we're trying to learn, learn what's the right approach. How do we do it differently? How do we mm-hmm. do it a bit better? I think something that we're, we're really interested to learn in this case is ultimately um, what Oz are looking at as the main outcome of this is a way to identify high quality targets. So a challenge for us is we're getting hundreds of submissions. How do we quantitatively assess what a high quality target looks like so that's a that's a big big challenge right so we're not going to get the answer from this competition but we're going to get on a step to learning because that is really the product that you're giving back to us out of running this competition is you know you're giving submissions the submissions are based on a uh, a perception that someone thinks that the work they've done is identified a high value target now whether that perception fits in with what Oz is looking for or what you might be looking for as well. Maybe, you know, that might be completely different. So so there's an interesting thing there. And I think we talked a lot about the consensus model and, and we will be, you know, providing the, this combined model as well. So it'd be, we definitely want to learn and be able to validate and test how much that idea of that the consensus is better than these individual results. What does that actually look like? Obviously, you know, in this case, we are awarding team individual teams so we're not providing financial rewards to every single person that's contributed to that consensus model we're awarding individual teams so there's certainly an interesting thing for us as on earth to think about how we go down this journey what does the incentive structure look like going forward mm-hmm. uh, for this we've got you know million dollars of prize money and that is distributed right so we haven't we're not awarding that to one person that's split between around i think 15 or, or so different prizes so i wanted to make sure that people are rewarded um, but there is some thought around what does a future incentive model look like. Do you mean like democratize the incentives a little bit more so more people are interested? Yeah, and I don't have the answer to that, but it's something that we think about. So if we're thinking about a long-term model where we're asking the crowd to keep producing these kind of consensus models around targeting, what's their incentive to do so? Mm-hmm. Uh, and have we got that right this first time? Whenever you do anything with the crowd, there's always a learning of what's the incentive for them to take part and, and that changes with different activities. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's something we're, we're always learning as well. But but ultimately to kind of scale and go down this process where if we really believe um, consensus modeling for exploration is a, is a much more preferable approach, um, we have to get the incentives right on both sides. You know, the exploration company is getting a huge amount of value out of it by having these really high quality targets. How does that value transfer back to the crowd? Do you think the fact that you have to work on this model may prevent companies from engaging with you guys because they're waiting for you to figure out the the perfect model, the incentive model? Oh, yeah, probably. But that's, you know, the standard, whatever curve is it, early adopters, and then I can't remember all the phases, but you, you always have that. Has that been a barrier to date where people go, well, since you don't know what the appropriate model is, uh, we don't want to invest in it until you figure it out? No, but I suppose we don't really talk like that either. I mean, I think with everything that we're doing, we're quite communicative that we're always developing products and we're always trying to improve what we do. So, you know, with any startup, you're testing something in the market. And and even once you have a product, you're still testing something new and you want to stay ahead of the game and you want to, you know, constantly be be innovating yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think companies that understand that and are trying to do that themselves, they are happy with our business model and how, and how we how we do that. 
I think certainly in the exploration stage, we're, we're, we're figuring it out, but we don't really talk that publicly about where we're at with a potential business model or mm-hmm. what we might think about changing. The interesting thing for me will be, you know, if we demonstrate well the value that Oz received from, from the competition, will there be, you know, people that want to follow in their footsteps? As I said before with Gold Corp, you know, it's interesting that that didn't happen. So I think we have to be conscious of how we articulate that value in a way and the process in a way that um, incentivize people to get involved because it's a real benefit for them. I think that's a really good point, actually, that if the incentive was finding a deposit of some means of getting additional revenue, that surely Gold Corp should have allowed other people to jump on. But that didn't quite happen. So maybe the industry is still looking for a different incentive. And I don't know what that is, but it's a very valid point. Yeah, and we as well are thinking, you know, what types of companies in the market, you know, um, is it likely to be similar companies to ours? I imagine people in a similar situation where they've been holding uh, an area of ground for quite a long time and have spent quite a bit of money on it will be in a similar position where they're kind of willing to say, yeah, you and if they're what? running out of ideas, then it's worth kind yeah, of throwing and, it. Yeah, and you know, there are, there's other things behind it as well. And, and I don't think this was a driver for Oz, but you've got things like if you've held ground for 10 years, your tenement expenditure is going to be pretty high. Yeah. Like, you know, it goes up substantially every year. So you're looking at a large area of ground, you're going to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of expenditure that you need to commit to yeah, anyway. That's so you've got to do something. You really want to get that as much value you can out of that ground. It really just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we'll see, or I, I imagine that we'll see companies in that kind of situation come to the party first. Um, and that, again, because of they've held the ground for so long, they're not really so worried about that data security. I mean, I guess that necessity is the the mother of invention in that sense. Mm. And then they're on the other side of it, which again, um, haven't explored in too much detail, but we see where there's, if you look at the the area of the market that's really driven to be able to identify targets, it's it's the investment community or, or for mergers and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. So how can you enable people to quickly identify high quality targets, mm-hmm. uh, which they want to just outright purchase? Um, so I think that's the other, that's the other area in the market, which is slightly different to just the explorer themselves um, and people that are want, wanting to. So that I see that as probably something that um, we're seeing happen with a lot of the data science exploration companies in the market so Goldspot, a classic one mm-hmm. you know a lot of the work they're doing now is going into helping people make investment decisions yep. um and so i think we'll see that really go down that road is that everybody wants to pick up that asset and identify that asset faster than anybody else does um, i mean it'll be interesting to see how the whole Goldspot thing plays out you know both from the investment side you know what type of returns do they get out of the the targets that they provide and Obviously, as an investment side, they have to sell it on. So, what type of returns are they getting from that point as well? Yeah, I like that. I like that they've um, publicly listed now that there's a lot more kind of public information about what they're what they're That's doing, right. and it's certainly um, got the market's interest right. I think you know someone did mention to me that part of the reason they went public was for that uh, marketing aspect, so that they just get a lot more exposure, and it certainly worked from from that perspective. I think. Yeah, that's right. And I think it stops being a little bit more black box as well. Uh, you know, what are these dudes doing in there? Um, so they obviously have to be a lot more open about what they're doing. You know, I think it adds a little bit of transparency that maybe makes people a little bit more comfortable in buying their products as mm. well. So let's fast forward. And I guess we've kind of talked a, a little bit about this. So what are some of the competitive advantages that you think companies could utilize in this space? Yeah, I mean, I suppose in the, you know, Example we're talking about with the Explorer Challenge, it's the ability to generate targets faster mm-hmm. and higher quality targets faster. So, assuming you know you get, we're able to prove that over time more definitively. I think there's a really obvious value add there in just the pure ability to generate targets in a much more uh, efficient way and high quality targets as well. My belief is if we're able to generate and more quantitatively talk about targets that the investment community will change mm-hmm. um so at the moment investing in exploration companies particularly juniors high risk you know potential high return but i think we're we may see if we really are able to prove more quantitatively quality of targets that that 
investment appetite may may change and some more of sophisticated investors in the market which mm-hmm. c- currently don't look to expiration may start looking that way i mean we've seen mm-hmm. the the recent example of bill gates investing in cobalt yep. metals ai machine learning expiration company interestingly for me there's been much talk about that in australia but i think it's really interesting to see a, a totally different type of investor class really coming on and, and looking at expiration and they're really actually if you look at what they're doing uh not necessarily doing anything in a dramatically different yeah that's right and i think yeah it's really interesting to see what's the motivation for that type of silicon valley investor in going into the space you know like what are they hoping to get there's a huge spin about ethical sourcing yes. of metal which i think is probably why they're their main driver in getting in that space but still it is a gateway into them accessing this industry. Yeah. And there is plenty of evidence of, I think, that type of crowd circling mining as well. I mean, if you think about you know, our biggest end user for metals is tech in a lot of ways. So eventually, you know, they're going to start looking up the supply chain to see what they could do around that space. So, so I wouldn't be surprised if they do have more of a footprint in this in the next couple of decades. Yeah, and I, and I think there are there are already those companies kind of investing into different stages of, of projects, mm-hmm. but it often tends to be a bit more more downstream. Um, but yeah, I think certainly there's a chance that that change in investor type and that change in investor environment could you know kind of fundamentally change how we do exploration, particularly in in Western Australia and the number of, of juniors that we we have here. But kind of going back to just general kind of incentives for crowdsourcing and um, that value add, I think a lot of people now uh, and mining companies in general are kind of realizing that their competitive advantage is kind of speed, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily um, even data or or particular tech IP. So I think the ability that the crowd gives you to generate new ideas, develop solutions, uh you know, automate processes is something that really can make a big difference and and provide that competitive advantage. I like the fact that you said it's speed because I think the perception maybe is that it's speed in uh, testing ideas, but I think it's also in the fact that it's uh, the speed of decision-making that it might allow you. If you come up with better targets, then you have to do less work on the targets that you have. Like right now, we yeah. don't have, we generate 50 targets, but we don't really know which one of them could be better than the other. If we become a little bit more quantitative, maybe we could actually tell that five of them are standouts, the other 45 are relatively less. So, so you have, a, I think, a speed of making decision making that could improve as well. Yeah, and I think that that's what we hope. I think, I, I don't know if that's what I would like to think, but I don't know how much that in an expiration sense um speed is a value driver it certainly should be yep but i think we often see that particularly again in fact going back to junior market that and probably even in the majors they're not too worried about the length of time but so the quality of decision making and exploration yeah. i think will definitely be a competitive advantage yeah when your probability of success is 0.01 and you can do it five percent better that's a phenomenally different change and i think it's not in terms of the concept of it it's, it's not a bridge too far i mean you know if you think about the standard you know, process that an exploration geologist goes through. Most of us have, you know, targeting matrices where, you know, weights and factors like geochemistry higher than gravity, mag mag higher than radiometrics. So, you know, we look for certain anomalies and we weight them based on, you know, how important they are to the specific things that we're looking for. So we understand that, but we haven't necessarily been able to, to do it in a way other than that kind of standard linear process that we're, we're used to. The method that we currently use relies on a lot of, uh, cognitive or heuristics I should say yeah but it would be interesting if we put those a lot of those heuristics in the workflow to see what you know what comes out I, I personally think there's an, a really fertile place to play here is to see that you could get a human yeah, you know, heuristic method and you could get a machine method and it'd be interesting to see what the difference between the two would be and you know maybe that's that's one way you can calibrate one and the other as you go along yeah and that's a big challenge for us when we're talking about um how to qualify the quality of a target you know you're going to have targets that are generated from machine learning models and you're going to have targets that are generated by geologists and mm-hmm. their you know backing rationale behind it so it is a challenge how do you compare and combine those in terms of just like talking about their quality relative to each other 
um, that is a significant challenge. It's like the the centaur model from chess that you know you used to have chess masters that reached a certain ranking, and then you had a machine that came out that went slightly higher. But when you combine them, they actually beat both of them. So so maybe that's actually the model we will inevitably end up with. But we have to kind of experiment to get there. And I think that's that's what's nice about the way we're doing the consensus model is that you can because we're really just asking people to provide us with. Uh, targets and prospectivity maps we can combine all of those outcomes without mm-hmm. having to necessarily know the process that has gone behind creating them no that's fine um so we're getting towards the end of our interview and we we always ask our guests two questions first one is what is something that you think needs to die in mining it could be an <laughs> idea a concept a behavior anything that we need to jettison out of the industry well, that's a tough question. Um, so I think, I, I guess, kind of based on the conversation we've had today, I think certainly some of those ideas that um, the expert is always the best. Um, I wouldn't say it needs to die. That's probably a bit, bit, bit intense. But um, I think we definitely need to move away from that idea that we always always have the right expertise uh, mm-hmm. for the problem that we're trying to, to solve. Uh, and then also just this, you know, the, the industry is often, and I think this is actually even stronger in geologists than probably in some other mining disciplines, but resistance to change and criticism of, of people whenever they do anything new, uh, is really rife. So I think just a change in behavior to, um, you know, understand when something's new to the market that uh, there is going to be a learning curve and that to try and, be part of that process of learning and seeing how it can complement your workflow rather than saying this will never work or oh you haven't considered this and you haven't done that so that's a behavior that i would like to see see change i suppose good one Conversely, what is something that you think we should maintain in uh in mining or in our industry at all costs something that's fundamental to how we behave that we shouldn't forget at all so i suppose almost kind of i hope i'm not contradicting myself here but i think there's a lot of value behind the deep domain expertise that we we do have. You know, a lot of people in mining have worked in mining their whole career. They have, you know, incredible uh, domain knowledge of what they're working in, and that that really allows them to do an, an amazing job. In in geology, we are typically good scientists. Uh, we've come from a scientific background. We apply scientific theory, and I definitely wouldn't want to see see that being lost. But I think a key thing is with both that kind of scientific approach and domain expertise is that we're able to bring that to new skills and new technologies and things that are outside of of our domain so the key for mining is being able to match well the domain expertise that we have and that we've developed with people who have skills that we need outside of our domain i think that's a good enough point to end on great thanks a lot for coming on our show holly thank you very much for having me Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Ahmad. This episode was produced and edited by Ahmad and recorded at Vision Studios in Perth. If you want to find out more about this podcast, check us out on explorationradio.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And we're even on Instagram. And if you like this podcast and want to help out, well, there's two things you can do for us. Give us a review on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And consider supporting us in producing more of this content. You can find the details on how to do that on our website at explorationradio.com slash support. Until next time, let's keep exploring.